elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what are you, do, you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that is on, honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have so much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Micah. You guys grab your seats. What a beautiful morning. Holiday weekend here in San Diego. Next week, we're going to launch into our, uh, our Father series, studying prayer through Jesus' most famous prayer. And I'm going to lay out what the rest of the year looks like with our prayer modules and 24-hour prayer room. And then we're going to lay out 2024 as well. So if you want to get a roadmap for where we've been and where we're going, that will be next Sunday. And then we spend the fall praying. But for today... Community, our last day studying the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as we wrap up our summer series. If you would, today's session is all about community, and uh, I'd like to just actually set this sermon in the midst of actual community. And so, would you look to the person next to you and tell them, I'll be there for you? Total strangers, I'll be there for you. Honestly, friends, that is what you need more than anything in this approaching life. What you're going to need is somebody to be there for you, but also you need to be there for somebody. You really do. And so I want to just continue to call the church as we wrap up this series to take up your own mantle of responsibility, to make disciples, to be there for the person next to you and to foster and develop true Christian community that is restorative. Let me pray for us, and we're going to get right into our text. Father, we now bow our hearts before you, and having declared our allegiance to each other, we are reminded that you are always there for us. Even now, you are here to speak into our souls. You are here to communicate with the deeps. I pray that this community would multiply fruitfulness and faithfulness, joy and peace, and that we would abound in love more and more 
being able to discern what is best in preparation for the day of Jesus Christ. Bringing the kingdom of righteousness on earth as it is in heaven, through our smiles, through our care for one another. I pray where there's hurt and wounding in this church, that there would be reconciliation and peace. I pray where there's hopelessness and despondency, desperation, that you would meet that soul where they are today in their brokenness, that they might take a deep breath and know that their father is there for them and their community surrounds them and we will not leave each other until the day you return. Strengthen us in such endeavors, Father, and may you add to our numbers those who are being saved, those who are being adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. And may we together worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Well, like I said, this is our final session in the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We've spent all of our summer studying the letters of John to these communities that dotted most likely Asia Minor, probably somewhere in the region of Ephesus. And here at Neighbors Church, we believe that God wants to restore the heart of humanity through community, specifically, specifically community with God himself, with each other, all under the reign and organized under the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, the world offers us a myriad of types of community, and some of those types of community are actually really helpful. They're actually really healing. They're actually, in some measure, in some degree, restorative. Take, for example, CrossFit gyms or book clubs or... I hear snickering about the CrossFit gyms. I get it. I get it. It's culty. I get it. Book clubs, political groups, sports clubs, service groups... The problem with the communities of the world that are offered to us is they can only take humanity's soul so far. Because without the Son, Jesus Christ, without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the salvation of the Father, without the intersection of heaven meeting earth, then these worldly communities, they can help, they can heal, they can get you fit, they can move an agenda forward, but only so far. We need the actual interaction between heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in each other. The world also, I'm sure we would all acknowledge, offers a myriad of false communities. And these false communities end up corrupting the soul. Uh, let's take communities that are just based on abject sin, um, frat houses and partying, yeah? <laughs> um, let's take uh, one group unified in oppressing another. What about community formed around false spiritual views? So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John is taking time to pastorally explain to his communities, and he is warning them about the nature of true and false community. And in particular, he was wanting to detail what are the marks and the beliefs and the behaviors of the restorative communities of Jesus that interact with heaven and earth, that incorporate and fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this triune love. One of, I would say, the primary factor of truly restorative community truly Christian community, the foundation of Christian community is intimacy. Can you all say with me, intimacy? It's even an uncomfortable word for me to say out loud. It kind of makes me squirm a little bit. False communities ultimately corrupt and destroy intimacy between God and humanity, and worldly communities can only build a certain level of intimacy, but within the Christian community, within Jesus's communities, we actually are offered and invited to the ultimate of intimacy, one with God, union with God. And the theology of the New Testament teaches that we are actually one with each other. That's how unified we are. 
Restorative community, as we close our series today, should foster intimacy. That's the big idea and the big question that we're going to revolve around here over the next 30 minutes as we close our series. How can we as a people foster community where strangers become family, where enemies are invited in, reconciled, and made new, where with ever-growing levels of holy intimacy, we are bound together, abounding in love for one another, bearing fruit for Jesus Christ. That's what we see happening here in the third letter of John that he wrote to his communities. So we have four primary characters in this letter. Let me introduce you to them. Number one, we have John the Elder there in verse one. He's the elder. He's the spiritual father. He's writing to these communities. Character number two is his friend named Gaius. Now, he refers to Gaius as agapetos, which is a, it's a technical term, and it's translated dear friend. He uses that term four times in 13 verses. Gaius was apparently the, the host or the leader of the church that he was writing to. And what we see him saying about Gaius is that I love this guy. He's in the truth. He's praying for Gaius that he would have good health, that all would go well with him. He's encouraging Gaius. You've been faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters. Keep at it. And he's warning Gaius, hey, be careful. Don't fall into imitating what is evil, but do what is good. Now, a third character that we have laid out here in the letter of 3 John is Diotrephes or Diotrephes. How'd you say it this morning? <laughs> Diotrephes. Diotrephes. Diotrephes was uh, your classic troublemaker. Diotrephes, he was a bit domineering. He was a bit obstinate. He was kind of loudmouthed. He was a little bit prideful. And thankfully, we don't have those type of people in the church anymore. So that's nice. Diotrephes. We don't know exactly what was going on, but we know that this guy wanted to be first. He wanted to be loudest. He wanted to be seen, and he would not welcome anyone that did not acknowledge his place in the community. He was a gossip spreading malicious nonsense about John and the community around him, and he was even refusing hospitality to those, as we learned last week, that were needing hospitality and deserving of hospitality. And then a fourth character that we have here is Demetrius. And Demetrius is the guy that everybody loves in the community. Demetrius is the guy that lifts the room when he shows up. Demetrius is the guy, when he comes to community group, he's always got the best guac with just enough garlic and a little hint of lime in it. Demetrius is the guy, whenever he prays, you know there's going to be some word given from Demetrius where everybody's like, whoa, that was just spot on. Demetrius is the one that is well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. So four characters, okay? Everybody tracking with that? We've got this community. It's in a church. These four characters, you've got Demetrius, you've got John the Elder, you've got Gaius, the Agapetos, the dear friend, and Diotrephes, this troublemaker. Now what I want you to notice is their names. This is really important. Notice their names. These folks, they were on a first name basis with each other. First name basis meant intimacy, First name basis meant less formality, less stiffness. First name basis meant that they were involved in each other's lives. First name basis meant that they actually had an ongoing awareness of each other beyond just a brief brushing of shoulders on Sunday morning. Absolutely crucial. Now, think with me of the first name basis family, intimate relationships that you have with this community around you. It's not all of us in this room. Some of you have come to me and said, man, I just love neighbors. It's a smaller church. It just feels so intimate. And so many more have come to me and said, after they've heard a name, who's so-and-so? And they've been here for like two years. Intimacy comes through these small proximal relationships where we can actually begin to know each other by name. So these folks knew each other. 
Now, most of you are too young to remember this, but back in my day, our phones actually plugged into the wall with a cord. How many of you guys remember that? You're about to eat. Oh, yes, that's amazing. There was this TV show back in the day, and it followed the lives of the employees and the patrons of a certain bar in the city of Boston called Cheers. The name of the bar was Cheers. And that iconic, I mean, probably one of the most iconic songs in the history of TV series went like this, making your way in the world today, Takes everything you got. I'm not going to sing it, Shua. There's no way I'm going to sing it. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. There you go. Wouldn't you like to get away? And then it ramps up. Sometimes you want to go. Oh, that's beautiful. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Everybody knows your name. I think part of the success of the series, Cheers, was those lyrics alone. It just, doesn't it just pull at your heartstrings and your deepest longings? It's because intimate community, whether in a bar or on a Wednesday night in somebody's house around a table, as part of a church community, intimate community is a fountainhead of pure joy for humanity. It is that feeling you get when you walk into the room and everybody knows your name and their faces all light up because you're there and vice versa, the Your dear friend walks in and you're like, yo, first name basis, fist bump, so glad to see you. Joy. Now here is the rub, as there is always in biblical teachings. We all want and desire and need intimate community. It's absolutely necessary for our thriving. But Many of us, I would say most of us, will oftentimes self-sabotage the development of intimate community in our lives because we don't quite understand what it actually is, what it actually is. I think the church and leaders in the church like myself have actually done a disservice by painting this shallow picture of what community is and calling it family, and then we're frustrated when it's not actually family. I think that late Western modern Christians, when we think about community, we tend to idealize it. So we start singing that tune from Cheers where everybody knows our name. It's all smiles and all of our troubles are all the same. And, and, and a community group and within our relationships, no one steps on toes and no one disagrees on social and political issues. And, and the food is always amazing. And the conversation just flows into the night and there's no long, awkward pauses after a question. Or the extroverts in idealistic community, they always surrender the floor to the introverts and the introverts actually talk loud enough where everybody else can hear. And in our idealistic vision of community, we show up on Wednesday night and everybody has already thought of our exact needs for that day and they meet them without us even having to ask. And then that doesn't happen. And we're frustrated. We resonate, friends, with the ideal of community. But let me tell you, every one of us resists the real of community, and that the real is where intimacy is fostered and developed. Thomas Merton, the great Catholic saint, said, there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. For life is maintained and nourished in us by our vital relation with reality as it is. The reality of intimate community, dearest friends, agapetas, It is rough around the edges, especially in the church. It is pockmarked with disagreements. It is full of personality clashes. For me and for many of us in our community groups, it's nights of just total boredom, just total boredom, and sometimes great degrees of difficulty. What I want you to see from the text 
is that John's community there in Asia Minor, don't idealize this community. They had Gaius, Agapetos, dear friend. They had Demetrius, dearly beloved. The guacamole is amazing. Thank you, Demetrius. And they had Diotrephes, the obstinate, loud-mouthed, troublemaker, super opinionated, will not be quiet, takes over the room. And I know right now, all of us might have a certain Diotrephes in our lives who's coming to our mind, and this is what's terrible about intimate community. Someone might have you in mind right now as I'm talking about Diotrephes. That's the problem. That's the trouble with real intimacy because all of us have that Diotrephes living within the obstinate, troublemaking, opinionated, belligerent, eventually that thing in there, that diatrophies, an intimate community will rear its ugly head. And so we may be thinking about somebody else, but they may just as much be thinking about us. Now we're getting into the guts of real community. Intimacy means we experience the pain and the burdens and the brokenness of our sin and the sin of others against us. Intimacy is not the absence of conflict and hurt. Intimacy is not the absence of conflict and hurt. Intimate community shapes us because it is challenging, uncomfortable, and difficult. I'm just dropping seeds here for the political conversations that are coming up in 2024. It's difficult. It's hard. Someone thinks you're Diotrephes as as much as somebody thinks you're Demetrius. That's the trouble with intimacy. So to close our time here this morning, right now, if you resonate, and just, just so I know I've got you with me, do you resonate with the ideal of community? We're cheers. Everybody, does everybody want that? Only a couple of you? Like two of you? Okay, good. Yeah, we're all, we're all in the same room together. Good. So if you, if you resonate with the ideal of community in your head, then we cannot resist the real of what it takes to get there. There are counterintuitive things that every Christian individually must decide, and we must learn. It's a learning process. Remember, we're apprenticing under Jesus. We spend our whole lives learning these practices and these points of courage as we carefully walk into making the ideal of community and our experience and for the experience of others more real. Three things. Learn to yield to one another. Learn to be seen. Learn to sacrifice convenience and comfort. Learn to yield to one another. Learn to be seen Learn to sacrifice convenience and comfort. Let's start with learning to yield ourselves to others, and we'll draw these points from the text. Now, the more difficult, jarring, offensive biblical language around this is learn to submit to authority and accountability. Learn to submit to authority and accountability. And I want you to see this from the text from John's community. What we see unfolding here in this letter is the beloved spiritual father, and sometimes not beloved. The guy wasn't liked by a lot of people, apparently. The elder John, for the health of everybody involved in the church and in this community, maybe even in this small group, he says to Diotrephes at some point in their relational history, to the troublemaker, to the loud, opinionated, obstinate, I'm going to go my way guy, John the elder writes to the entire church, Asking this guy to yield. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. Somewhere in the history of this community, Diotrephes began to get off track. So John pursued him and asked him to do what? To yield to his authority and to yield to the body of believers' authority as rooted in Jesus Christ's truth, defined by Jesus Christ's will according to the scriptures. And Diotrephes apparently disagreed and resisted. 
Rather than yielding, he broke communion with the community, and then he went on and created further havoc in his sin and rebellion through gossip and malice and slander. And then Diotrephes went ahead and killed intimate community by absolutely refusing to yield and being accountable to Jesus Christ through John the Elder and his group that he was within. Now, let's talk about this yielding, submission, authority, accountability language, because I know how triggering this is. I know how bad it sounds in our ears. I know if you're new to the church or even if you've been in the church for your whole life, this stuff can begin to sound super culty. Culty, And this is why. Culturally, we swim in an aquarium that teaches us that we are our own authority. We submit only to our most authentic self. But I just want to highlight two key problems and bring up a third issue with this language around accountability and authority. Two problems with this narrative that we only submit to our own authority and our own authentic self. First of all, first problem with that narrative, that worldview is producing the most anxious and lonely society in recorded history. Without accountability and authority that we are yielded to in our lives, we are just islands unto ourselves, and that should be terrifying. If you alone are the only one making the shots for your life, that should feel alone. That is terrifying. That's problem number one with that narrative. Problem number two is this. The radically autonomous, totally unique individual does not exist in reality. Let me give you an example that I stumbled across just two days ago reading in the news. Bianca Snyder, Bianca Snyder. She is a cannabis entrepreneur, and she's a social media influencer. And she was recently calling on moms to be confident in their life and parenting choices after being, she was just being mobbed and shamed online for taking her little children to Burning Man. How many of you guys know what Burning Man is just by a show of hands? Okay, good. This illustration is going to work. Burning Man. In this article, she'd been shamed for taking her little kids to Burning Man. And this is what, this is what she writes in this article. She writes, I write to, or I work to inspire mothers to be confident in their choice to consume plant medicine or the devil's lettuce, whatever you want to call it. That's literally her quote. That's not me just making a joke. That's her quote. And then she writes this. I want others to be their unique self. Let's be as freaking weird as we can. Why is it, as a society, that we want to fit in? We want to be normal. We want to be one with the flock. But like, what if the flock kind of sucks? Okay, she writes that. Now listen, here's the irony of this situation. I'm unique. I don't want to be one with the flock. You be you. You be your most independent, unique you. But the reality is Burning Man is a gigantic festival of almost 80,000 people gathered in the desert like a flock. It is 80,000 people saying, we don't fit in, all of us. We shouldn't fit in, all of us. We're all different from each other, and they're all doing the same thing, mainly a lot of mushrooms, but they're all doing the same thing out there. They are a community saying we're the most individualized, unique, weird, authentic community all together as a community. No matter how independent we think we are this morning, you and I are hardwired. We, are, we can do nothing but yield to community. You are yielded to an authority this morning whether you know it or not. You are following, mimicking, and imbibing a community's ideals and teachings and truths and ideas no matter what because we are wired that way. Even the most individualistic person has yielded their perspectives and behaviors to a long line of thought leaders that have said absolute autonomy is the way to flourishing. No matter what, we're yielded. Now, let me get to a third issue that we're all probably wrestling with with this language of submission and authority. Let me just pastor my heart and your hearts for a little bit. 
Most of us are unjustifiably comfortable, or excuse me, justifiably uncomfortable. There we go. We are justifiably uncomfortable with the language of submission and yielding and accountability and authority. Why? I think because 99% of us in this room have been hurt by the authority that we yielded to at some point in our lives. Gross and consistent abuses of power by familial, spiritual, educational, political authorities. It's no wonder that we recoil at the prospect of anyone, even John the Elder, even Jesus Christ himself saying, look, the practice of yielding is a way to intimacy and flourishing. It's no wonder that we don't all wince at that and say, oof, I just don't know how that can be true. Friends, this is the great tragedy within fallen humanity in community around authority, the issue of pain and abuse of authority. And it has been a real issue within the church since the very beginning. The modern fallout of abusive leaders in the church has been around since Diotrephes in the first century. And it will be around until Jesus returns. I don't say that abysmally. I say that theologically. The human heart is warped when it is given power. Our challenge as a community of Christians, as modern Christians, is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because you are always going to be yielding to an authority no matter what. You're always going to be yielding to a broken authority no matter what. The Christian community has to continue to mature by always relearning to yield to the authority of scriptures, elders, overseers, and the Christian community at large, even in its imperfections and brokenness. Now listen, this is not some culty, unchecked, unquestioning, unchallenged yielding. In cases where sinful manipulation and abuse occurs, we, the church, we call that out, just like John did with diatrophies. We call for repentance of the abuser, and we carefully, intentionally press on, always learning to yield, doing our best to once again, yeah, that guy hurt me. Yeah, that leader hurt me. Yeah, that was awful, but I must learn to trust and retrust because I'm always going to be trusting something. Did all that make sense? Okay, good. Ultimately, the process of an individual Christian learning to trust a community around them is about learning to trust and yield to Jesus. We embody our trust to Jesus by embodying our trust one unto another. And he forms us through bad, broken leaders that hurt us just like bad, broken leaders hurt him. And he forms us through gentle, kind, wise leaders just like Jesus was formed by his father. We want to be like Jesus, and so we yield everything to him through this embodied practice of submission. All the spiritual giants of Christianity, they all, every single one of them, called for the people of God to practice submission as an act of becoming like Jesus, who at the end of his life said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Now, there is complexity here. There's nuance here. The main point that I wanted to plant as we close this series is without a heart that at the very least is recognizing that you are yielding to something, and number two, is open to yielding to and, ye and practicing submission to a community of Christianity, then you will. You'll miss God's provision for you. If your heart is standoffish and stiff-armed, you're going to miss. You're going to miss how God wants to shape your soul through broken community, how God wants to foster intimacy and gentleness and kindness and formation. So concretely, what does this look like? As I close up this point, concretely, what does this look like? It looks like you literally have people through which you filter all of your life decisions. And I want to say something here that's really important. 
it may not just be your small group, and it may not be your small group at all. Our Father knows what we need in every situation and in every circumstance. So our Father provides trusted mentors and leaders, people that we grow close with in our small groups, individual friends within the church. In every life circumstance, we're going to have a different community that speaks into it. Let me just speak from my own life. When Alexis and I left Seattle, we literally yielded our calling to our entire church. That's how important it was to me. It was 150 to 200 people processing for six months should the founding leaders of this church be sent to San Diego to plant churches. It was... It was wild. It was emotionally, it was everything that you can imagine that would be. And at the end of the day, the consensus was from our community, the entire community, we're going to send this apostolic family to go and plant more churches in San Diego. It was beautiful. And I have that to stand on for the rest of my life. When I'm really down and out, nope, it's their fault. They sent us. (laughs) This last year, here's a small thing. This last year, Lex and I... um, God bless my kids, but they destroyed our minivan. The minivan was just dead. It was completely done. So we had to get a new car. And we actually process that with a few people within our community, people that I trust. Like, hey, what do you think about this car? Is it, honestly, we were, as public figures, we were literally asking, is this too flashy? Is this, what is this? And all of our friends were like, why are you processing this with us? Why is it? Because filtering my community, I need help. I don't want to be diatrophies here. I want to be Gaius. I want to be Demetrius. Uh, This fall, for myself personally, um, I've been invited to teach up at Western Seminary as a professor up there, and I'm praying through right now possibly starting a doctorate. I am processing that with my staff. I'm processing that with my team. And if at some point my team or my community says, you know, I think it's too much, I'm out. I'm yielded to the community. This teaching that you guys get every Sunday morning, it goes through a grid of voices. This isn't just me coming up with ideas. This teaching actually is almost practically rewritten because of the comments that the team put in. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of work. (laughs) Who we marry, where we live, if we move, what job we pursue. These are the decisions that we should be filtering alongside our community with a yielded heart all the way up to, hey, am I acting like Diotrephes in this? Or even worse yet, somebody sits us down and says, hey, Diotrephes, chill. We need to respond to that. And honestly, I, I want to say this as gently as I can. If somebody hasn't called you diatrophies yet, if you haven't had that conversation, you're missing a key piece of intimacy. You need to be known well enough that somebody can be like, that was a bit out of line, a bit much. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. This is terrifying stuff. Learn to be yielding to another. Learn to be seen. We've got to speed up here a little bit. Learn to be seen. Learn to be seen. Make the ideal real by learning to be seen. Christian psychologist Chip Dodd is this brilliant psychologist from Texas. He's got all these sayings. I love them. He says, intimacy equals into me see. Intimacy equals into me see. Cheesy, but so effective. That hooks. We are terrified and we resist the real of intimate community because we do not want to be seen. Here's my working thesis. Because of sin done to us, sin done by us, and sin done around us, Every single human on this planet is just a walking inferno of shame, shame. Adam and Eve, they were created in what the text says was a state of no shame, no shame. And after the fall, the text says they were ashamed. I would even translate that almost, they were all shame. Their covering was shame. They were all shame. And you and I are born in the lineage of Adam and Eve, and so we are born into this inferno of ashamed, all shamed. And we try to hide ourselves just like I did. In the, in the imagery of the, new, of, of the Old Testament, Adam and Eve hid themselves with fig leaves. And we have a thousand fig leaves by which we hide ourselves. Self-pity, victim mentality, laziness, apathy, despair. 
On the other side of the shame coin, bravado, chest puffing, productivity, performance, money, fame, beauty, body image. We have a thousand fig leaves by which we cover this sense of insecurity, humiliation, smallness, lack, hurt, pain, insecurity. And in intimate communities where we slowly, slowly learn, and we must continually relearn to allow our failures, our pride, our insecurities to come out into the light. And this is the paradox of shame. Shame literally wants to keep us isolated. It wants to keep us hidden and in the dark, away, separated, in a chasm, separated from other people. But the only way to actually begin to heal shame, to get it by the jugular, is to bring it right out into the light and talk openly about insecurities, uncertainties, failures, pride. Learning to be seen is what opens the door. As we share in a community, it opens the door for other people to begin to come out of hiding. And we do discover that, hey, every single one of us is just as insecure as the other one. I'm just as scared as you are. I'm just as messed up as you are. Not to just sit there and condone and pat each other on the back around our insecurities and our failures, but to say we're in this together to be transformed together. As we share our pain, failures, and insecurities, the community around us feels those same things. Empathy, sympathy, and we are healed because we know we are no longer alone. This is what Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson calls the joy and the freedom of feeling felt. To sit in a room where you say something and you're so embarrassed and you can see in Gaius, the agapetos, the dear friend across from you, he's embarrassed not just for you, but embarrassed about the same thing. You're like, oh, wow, I feel you feeling me, bro. (laughs) We're in it together. It's so good. Thank you, God, I'm not alone. Hey, I respect you. Hey, you respect me. Whoa, that feels good. I I squirm under it because I'm shamed, but wow, intimacy and transformation. Is this vulnerability dangerous? And I say, I've said this often through this series. Yes. To open ourselves up and to let people see us is extremely dangerous. People, people are dangerous. Diotrephes is dangerous, he's mean. He's socially unaware. He's dangerous. But you and I, we are Demetrius, Gaius, and Diotrephes. You and I, you, you are dangerous. I am dangerous. So we must always remember that at the epicenter of Christian community is not our performances and not our abilities to get it right. It is Jesus Christ, his cross, mercy, forgiveness, and restoration. In Jesus The Christian community is absolved of all shame and empowered by the Spirit. But the way that we actually embody that, it's more than just an intellectual belief where we say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm clean and forgiven. How many of you walk away from that moment of intellectual assent to that truth saying, I feel great? No, you have it in your brain, but you've got to get your theology into your biology. You've got to get your belief into your body. How do you do that? Eye contact with another human being, expressing that shame, expressing that fear, expressing that insecurity in the power of the Holy Spirit and having another human being look at you and say, I love you. I care for you. I'm not leaving you. That's the voice of Jesus Christ. And somehow it gets into our biology in community. The vertical relationship of horizontal belief goes, or excuse me, vertical belief goes horizontal in the midst of community. And this fostering, this type of community that we're talking about, that we're going for here at this church, that we've built this church on, that we hope to live for five generations minimally within the context of Neighbors Church, it takes a ton of time and a ton of consistency and that dreaded word, commitment. Commitment. Learn to yield to one another. Learn to be seen. Learn to sacrifice convenience and comfort. This is our last point. Agapetas. Dear friends, The culture in which we swim, convenience and comfort are the driving values of our society. 
And so we as Christians, we unconsciously assume, we approach our Christianity as if it should be convenient and comfortable. And then we're shocked when Jesus says, you got to carry a cross. And we're like, that hurts. That's uncomfortable. That, no, I I want some me time. I want some help with this. We don't want that. There's nothing convenient or comfortable about long, consistent, committed community that fosters restorative intimacy. The modern myth that convenience and comfort lead to our highest flourishing, it's a categorical lie. There is nothing that has real transformative effect for our souls that doesn't crucify convenience and comfort. Fitness, nutrition, education, career pursuit, relational satisfaction, social change, all of that stuff costs and requires sacrifice and planning and effort and struggle. Now, over the years, I have noted the complaints of Christians, many, many years now, two decades of leading in the church, and I have heard Christians leaving the church, usually with some tagline, oftentimes with a tagline like this, you know what, the church is just so clicky, I just, I don't feel like I'm welcome here. No, no one actually really knows me in the church, no one really cares about me in the church, that's why I'm leaving the church. And when I press them, when I've pressed them very gently and pastorally, okay, well, tell me about your consistency. How, how often are you there on Sunday morning? Are you intentional about shaking hands? Tell me about your community group. Are you pretty consistent with your community group? I, there's a standard script to that question. How are you doing in your small group? How consistent are you? How much are you there? Here's the script. Well, my job, it keeps me so busy, so the idea of adding something else to the calendar just doesn't work for me. Or here's another one. Uh, my kids, soccer, piano, judo, art class, basketball, baseball, basket weaving, it's that night, you know? One of my favorites, and nobody's ever actually said this to me out loud, but I've read it between the lines. You know, you asked me about community. The reality is, you know, Netflix is streaming all 27 seasons, 286 hours of The Bachelor. (laughs) And it's just more convenient for me to sit around and eat hot Cheetos and binge The Bachelor than to show up at community group and then convince myself that people don't know me. Convince me that I'm not welcome. Convince me that the church is a non-caring people. Listen, Agapetas, dear friends, Demetrius, Diotrephes, Gaius, as an elder, as a spiritual father, you need to hear this. To build what you long for more than anything in your soul, to build intimate community, it's very, very hard. For you kids that are carrying 15, 16, 18, 20 credit loads, it's very difficult. It's hard. It's hard to press into community and make time for it. Building communities with babies and little kids can feel absolutely impossible. You want to have a sweet time of quiet listening prayer and the baby's just filling its drawers and the two-year-old is chucking spaghetti across the room. It's so hard. But that's where intimacy is actually happening, by the way. (laughs) Building community with the busyness of an American calendar, it can feel absolutely impossible, but we prioritize what we want. We have the volition and the choice to prioritize what we want. And I will say, building community when you could just binge The Bachelor and eat hot Cheetos feels absolutely impossible to me. I would much rather do that. Shua had the solution for this in the teaching notes, though. He's like, let's build community by binging The Bachelor and eating hot Cheetos together. (laughs) (laughs) If we want the real of intimate community, you and I have to sit down and do a hard, long look at the reality of what it will cost us, the inconvenience and the comfortableness of this, uncomfortableness of it. And ultimately, this is why Jesus came. Jesus lived and died in the context of our triune God to to create intimate community with our triune God. Everything that we have to do to foster community, being seen, giving up conveniences and comforts, 
you know, surrendering our will to the will of another. Jesus did that in the most extreme way for you. This is why you can trust him and obey him when he says the way to intimacy is these hard practices. Jesus yielded to the authority of another. There's a click for our worship. He yielded to the authority of another so that his father, when his father, when his father said, this is going to cost you, Jesus, to bring these people to me. This is what it will cost. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross. And Jesus was seen. When you and I feel shame, which we do right now, we're just masters at like charading and covering it and, and protecting ourselves from it. We all feel it right now, that sense of insecurity, loneliness, nobody knows me, uh, I'm a failure, I'm too ugly, I'm never gonna, the narratives that we're all living through. When we begin to feel exposed, where Jesus invites us to is the foot of the cross where he was truly stripped naked and shamed. The second Adam was made naked and shamed so that we could be naked and unashamed. Meditation in that, in the midst of community, what does that feel like? What does that look like? He was exposed in the ultimate way. And he sacrificed comforts and conveniences that you and I could never even get our heads around to come for us. And so our response is to be no less than sacrificial of our comforts and conveniences for eternal flourishing. And so we end where we began. Our vertical relationship with our triune God embodied in horizontal relationship with each other. And I am praying, I began praying at the beginning of this series that our love here at Neighbors Church would grow more and more in intimacy with our triune communal God and with each other. That at the center of our communities would be Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And that we would feel what the other person is feeling. And that each of you in this coming year would join a community group and you'd get to feel that sensation, that joy of walking in and, and everybody's like, I know your name and I know what's going on in your life and I know the pain you're wrestling with and here's my life, here's what's going on with me. And ultimately, this is for the invitation of the world to come in and see what disciples of Jesus Christ are all about. And so let me pray for us. Father, we close this series now and prepare for a fall season of deep prayer, prayer in community, prayer as individuals. But only you, Holy Spirit, can bind together a people. And in this room, Lord, young and old, each of us in respective places, seasons of life, school, single, married, raising kids, kids are leaving the house. Lord, we want to foster that intimate community and we want to play our part, but more importantly, we want to know our union with you. I pray this morning that neighbors would be a place of gentleness and safety. That those things that we've been hiding, those things that we've been uncertain, can, can, can this community handle this? That it would come out into the light. I pray that forgiveness would be freely given at the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that mercy would be our center. And more than ever, Lord, I pray that this would be a joy-filled community. That joy that we experience, even here on Sunday mornings when, when people walk in and more names are known and we know these people's names. Such joy to see each other, such laughter, such delight. Children playing in the playground of creation with their father. I pray that the community groups, Lord, would be melded together. I pray this morning for more community group leaders that we might multiply these pockets of the kingdom of God throughout the city of San Diego.
And so we leave this all in your hands now and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all pray and we'll prepare for communion. Or stand.